This episode of Home Truths is sponsored by Harlequin, the premier destination for inspirational design and colour. You know, one of your biggest enemies as a designer can be the housekeeper because they'll whack their hoover into your beautiful table or your chair legs. And and it, it becomes second nature to learn how to build in little defences so there's longevity. From Living Etc magazine, this is Home Truths, a show about the fascinating stories behind some of the most iconic pieces, movements and moments of modern design, revealed by the designers themselves. I'm Pip McCormack, and on the show today, how Guy Oliver went from being an officer in the Navy to working on the design of some of the biggest and most prestigious hotels in the world, from the Standard in New York to Claridge's in the Connaught in London. Guy's career has taken him to a very different place from where he started out. As a closeted recruit to the Navy, Interiors was his retreat and eventually saw him follow his passion to work with some old school design legends on some very grand Scottish homes. He has since built up his own agency, Oliver Laws, after inheriting a very historic company from his former boss and used it as a place to create some of the most rarefied, special and exquisite hotels in the world. Before this episode, Guy gave me five milestones from his career which he thinks were key moments and, in explaining the stories behind them, he's going to tell us how he got to where he is today, starting with his very early introduction to the Navy. I don't think I knew what I got involved with when I joined the Navy because um, then it was kind of a, a sort of strange portent that they arrived at my school they were lost and they they firstly arrived at a state comprehensive in sterling with an officer recruitment team and i don't think either had seen <laughs> the other ever and um they were supposed to be going to a private boys school and they came to my school and uh the headmaster said sent six of us to go and sort of see this um presentation and as an apology the uh, navy uh, invited all six of us to what's called an officer's acquaint trip and we were flown out to lisbon in portugal and then put on an aircraft carrier and it went across the bay of biscay and up into recife and it was like this sort of three-day trip which for a 15 year old schoolboy was pretty amazing and i met this admiral on board and I told him I was learning to drive on my uncle's farm and he made me drive him up and down the flight deck in his Ford Granada <laughs> at sea. Um, and then he um, told me I, I didn't drive over the edge of the ship or um, crash into any aircraft. He said I'd make a bloody good naval officer. I thought this was fun. And um, about six months later, I ended up sitting my Admiralty interview board. But of course, you know, that period of time in the Navy was... Uh, there wasn't the internet and there wasn't um, communication. And part of my story is that I'm gay. And at the time, as a sort of 15-year-old, 16-year-old, I wasn't sure whether that was a permanent state of affairs or not. But I was also, it was also a court-martial offence if anyone had ever found out about it. And so it was quite a, in some ways, it was this amazingly exciting, almost like a sort of finishing school where you're sort of racing off all over the world and we were guard ship in Fiji or working in Hong Kong or the Middle East or South America or Antarctica or whatever it was. But on the other side, in your personal life, you I knew I had to be 
very sort of discreet and um not I was always the court jester or the person making jokes and always having very disappointed um plus ones at dinners or mess balls or any of those things <laughs> I'd find a, a suitable girl to bring on my arm but um, she'd obviously often be very frustrated at the end of the day um, and it was a very weird sort of situation because you could never know even if somebody you were sharing a room with was the same as you or and now it seems so alien the whole idea there's a captain in the navy who's married a male captain who's married to a man and it's not even an issue and they're they're rated as one of the best equal opportunities employers but it was quite a strange you know I'd gone from one institution to another so I didn't hadn't any life experience and I was you know 16 when I went to the Royal Naval College and so I didn't know I wasn't sophisticated enough to know how to deal with it and it was just sort of slightly scary part of my character that I tried to hide and suppress and um that sounds so sad. I'm so sorry that that yeah. was your experience. But I understand that you had a slight form of escapism while you were there and sort of discovered Interiors magazines. Is that right? <laughs> yes. So, I mean, I don't know how they didn't know that I was gay, but um, everybody, everybody else was reading this. There's a publication called Jane's Defence Weekly, which basically tells you how many guns or missiles there are on a ship or an aircraft. And everybody would read that. It's a sort of boys' own magazine that, that, that is distributed in the armed forces and meanwhile i was also getting interiors magazines <laughs> and, um, um i saw an article about a man called michael player and people don't know this name anymore but players cigarettes was this enormously um big company and, and it was a british tobacco uh, cigarette manufacturers and Michael Player had inherited this fortune. But before he inherited the money, he had decided he wanted to be a, a designer or a decorator. And his parents paid John Fowler of Colfax and Fowler to make him an intern um, because they didn't know what to do with him. And they said he was creative, which was a euphemism for his sexuality. And, um, and John Fowler apparently said he was the best assistant he'd ever had but then the parents died and Michael inherited this fortune and stopped working so it's sort of this you know that that thing about money which it takes away enterprise and and Michael bought a house in Aberdeenshire and he spent the rest of his life um, working on every single detail about it and this article that I read described this beautiful beautiful house and park and gardens and he turned out not to be far away from my family in Aberdeenshire so I wrote a letter to him and I said I'm a 23 year old naval officer and I'd like to become an interior decorator and he I got this very excited response and I was invited to come and meet him when I was on leave and uh, he he seemed suitably impressed when I went to meet him there was this I drove up to the house and there was this vision in a lime green tweed suit with a yellow neckerchief and a pink handkerchief and a dachshund and and he, his first question when I got out of the car, he said, you may have gathered by now that I'm queer. Um, and I said, no, no thought hadn't crossed my mind. Um, and he said, are you? Um, and I was slightly scared because he was in his 70s. And, you know, I was I just didn't know how to deal with this flamboyant character. And I said, no, I'm not. And I sort of looked down and he looked down and the Daxon looked down. And I thought this is going to go horribly wrong. And then he I, I said, is it a handicap in this profession if you're not? And he, he looked me in the eye and he said, well, it might help if you learned, dear. 
<laughs> so I then was given this two-hour interview and we had lunch and there was a he was a very charming man and he wrote two letters one to a lady called Sylvia Lawson Johnston who had a sort of country house decorating practice in Aberdeen and the other was to Imogen Taylor who was the boss of Colfax and Fowler in Mayfair in London at the time so both of them gave me jobs Sylvia gave me a job as a sort of an apprentice designer and I was paid 50 pounds a week and uh, worked in a bar in the evenings and did all kinds of things to try and keep make ends meet and um, there was a period of a year where we were going around Scotland and the clients were either people from the oil industry so there's oil executives in Aberdeen or old landed Scottish gentry who uh, tried to make every shilling go as far as it could <laughs> And um, so it was like this sort of diametrically opposed cultures that, um, and one, you know, we'd be working in a sort of crumbling castle one minute, the next in this sort of executive um, house in central Aberdeen or whatever. And by the way, what had you said to convince um, Michael that you had any sort of interiors flair? Um, I told him about, my mother had had an antiques business when I was growing up and we spent a lot of, I spent a lot of time looking at um, furniture and antiques and understanding them. And also the Navy sent me to university um, after I, first of all, I did two years in the Navy and then I came, they sent me to Edinburgh University and I was supposed to read defense studies and geography and cartography. But the beauty of the Scottish university system is that you can switch courses and I omitted to tell the Navy that I switched to history of architecture and history of art. <laughs> and um, that um, gave me a good grounding sort of knowledge of period. And I generally was just fascinated by the subject. So I was always reading about it. And I think he thought I understood the culture um, and I love drawing and all that sort of thing. So it was a conversation where he felt I was able to hold my own ground and that I wasn't just doing this on a whim it was something that I you know it was I felt it was more of a vocation than than, than just uh, something that would be nice to do. And did you feel at all that you had any idea what you were doing when you were driving around Scotland meeting all these clients or did you, were you winging it a bit? <laughs> well I was usually sort of tagging along with Sylvia so we had she had an amazing client she one of them was Anita Roddick who was the body shop at the time and Anita's now died but she bought a beautiful house called Candor Craig um, which was in Strathdon, and working on that was wonderful. Sylvia also had her own workrooms and curtain rooms and all those sort of things. So learning those skills firsthand and being able to talk to the client about them was, we're always learning every every day, you know, you're constantly learning, but being able to understand the, the process and the craft and the artisanal side of things is important and because she had her own workrooms. I was able, she showed me how curtains were cut and made and patterns were, were you know, so all those things which, I don't do anymore, but knowing and understanding how to do it and have the conversations with the makers and is important. And so it was, yeah, it was a very much a traditional apprenticeship, to be honest. And so I, I didn't, I didn't know a great deal, but I, I was keen to learn and uh, watch. And she was a great teacher um, in that respect because she, she taught me from the practical side as well as the sort of creative and creating the schemes and the, um, all of that. So it was quite a sort of classical, traditional approach to design. I guess your your formative years were quite sort of grand. Yeah, I I think so. I mean, I I always had this natural interest in 
in classical architecture and historic buildings. And as a boy, I spent a lot of time, there's a lot of ruined houses in Scotland and a lot of houses in decline. And I used to cycle around all these houses, these big houses that were sort of slowly falling apart and um, and was fascinated by the interior spaces and the architecture and the detailing. And and so for me, it became more of a passion. And I th- even that uh, uh, when I went to university in Edinburgh, there was a, a group called the Portico Society, which was this rather weird group of nerdy characters. And we stood in front of bulldozers um they were there was a man going to demolish quite a famous william adam house in in edinburgh and we stopped it being demolished and i remember always thinking that these buildings were important and that they should be you know re repurposed or reused and whether they're like kip martin who turns them into apartments or whether they become institutions or whatever but you know it seems such a waste to destroy these things and now that kind of sustainability is very fashionable but it wasn't fashionable then but i always had this you know compassion for those those properties and those buildings and especially when they were being replaced with something that was less or you know an in- inferior replacement you know, because people were just trying to put something up that was modern or cheap and it it seemed odd to me that you would destroy something that was beautiful well that's a lovely uh, restorative approach that sort of foreshadows later in your your career i think but um in so in come the mid 90s you met david laws <laughs> uh, how did that come about so firstly i was at colfax and fowler and there was a I had a strange situation where my um, male boss was being inappropriate and I was asked to leave because I wasn't cooperating in inverted commas. Um, and that was, that led to me suddenly being cut loose and I had to do um, freelance projects and I met people like Michael Lynchbold and Sally Metcalf and, and Paul Dyson. And I was doing every little project I possibly could like uh, exhibitions, parties and, and learning the ropes on all kinds of different in all kinds of different ways. And one of my friends was a man called Adam Sykes, who owns a fabric company in London called Claremont. And they're very much dealing in fabrics that are made in, you know, finer types of fabrics that are rare or unusual. And he called me one day and said, I don't know if I should tell you about this job, but someone called David Laws is looking for um, a man to come in and take over his business. And the reason why he didn't want to tell me about it was at first, or he wasn't sure, was because he'd had the job previously and he couldn't deal with David's mercurial and erratic behavior and huge mood swings and and aggressiveness. And he would shout and swear at people. And Adam famously went out for a sandwich at lunchtime and didn't come back. Um, and apparently there were four others who'd been in the role before me, but the Navy had been quite a good training for me. So when ever David would have some sort of um, fit or, or get sort of difficult or, or behave badly. It was like water of a duck's back to me. So I kind of was able to deal with him. He was, um, he had lots of anger and frustration in him and had come from quite an, I mean, I later found out he'd come from quite an abusive sort of childhood himself. So I, I kind of grew to understand him, but um, he was notoriously difficult, precious, um, you know, creative. And he would literally, if somebody did something he didn't like on site, he would throw something at them. I saw him throw a brick at a builder once and an an ashtray at um, at an assistant. And the weird thing at that time was sometimes people would try and 
please him and behave. It was a very weird, you know, way look insight into human behavior because those people that he'd been sort of rude to would then try and please him. And I, I was like, what is going on here? You know, you can't, you can't treat people like this. But he came from that sort of generation, which was, you know, they got away with stuff. And when he asked me to be a director of the business, I said, I'm not going to be a director of the business unless you stop the way you behave and um, and talk to people sometimes. And he, he said, what do you mean? And I said, well, I don't want to be part of something that's going to be have that sort of culture. And I also don't want to be sued <laughs> by somebody in the future. And he, he sort of mellowed. It was weird that he had, there was a stage where he transitioned and I'd sort of stood up to him and he started mellowing and, and adjusting his behavior. And, um, and there was a sort of, harmonious period for a while and then as he was retiring he became quite um he didn't want to go and there was a sort of weird period where it looked like I was going to go because I thought well I can't hang around here forever and and then finally he retired and we we maintained uh contact but um you know I had to learn all the skills of supporting a business which is um always um you know, being a designer, the 25% of it is creativity, 75% is is um, keeping a small business going. And that's always a entertaining subject. But. Absolutely, absolutely. And I mean, the whole period sounds like the makings of a, a TV drama that <laughs> needs to be made. But, um, you know, what was the business like when you took over? You know, what sort of projects were they working on? What size was the company? You know, what, what were you inheriting? So there were at the time when I first came, there were 14 staff in the business and he did everything by hand. There was no computer. Um, the accounts were all in ledgers, um, which is really strange because even by that stage, people had, you know, um, at least some kind of account system or whatever. And all the um, orders were written out on these sort of um, carbon paper triplicate books they had these very weird order books and one would go to the with the order one would go to the accountant and one would go to the you know the client and everything and it was just an incredibly laborious system so I had to introduce you know an accounting system and bring in bringing word processors and then bring in um, you know uh, start, we had the website and all that which was all such an alien language to David and so it was this uh you know slightly antiquated way of doing things and so now i employ seven people and they probably are more productive than the 14 were previously but it was just a very kind of old-fashioned way of doing things and it had worked for him i mean up until that date and a lot of the clients were from his generation so typically it was a sort of practice for for country house properties and and their townhouses clients townhouses and the odd you know someone who was a he worked with a family who owned the Dalton Group, and so he did things like the, you know, the chief executive's offices, or, um, you know, it would it would always be things related to the family or the family business. And um, he worked on the odd hotel project, um, but mostly it was private houses, and um, there was a private yacht that he worked on, and various other things. And and when I came in, I was invited to work at Claridge's, which was a um, uh, sort of, he'd worked there previously about 10 years before. And um, there was a, the man that I mentioned previously, Michael Inchbold, who'd been a sort of mentor and a friend and helped train me, had worked there from the 1940s. So I got a call one day from the design director and they'd heard about me and they asked if I would be interested in doing six suites for them in the six new suites at the hotel. And um 
that was a sort of my beginning working in in um in hotel work as well and the nice thing about hotels is they're very happy for you to publicize and publish pictures of what what you've done whereas some private clients aren't most mostly they want um to keep their privacy um but the hotels are very happy for everyone to see it so it was quite a nice um balance to keep sort of half of it working in the hotel world and half in private work and what was Claridge's like at that time because I, I, it's very cool now and it's like this wonderful place to go but hotels you know are quite cyclical in there you know whether they're in or whether they're out and and, and what what was it like in the 90s do you remember well yes they I mean the, the first day I walked in I literally was scared to death because I'd never been in a grand hotel like that before even in the days in the navy and I'd worked you know where we I traveled around and I'd met you know with a captain we'd, we'd been taken to meet heads of state and all that kind of thing but I never really knew that grand hotel culture in in um, London and at the time some of the staff were still wearing these sort of weird uniforms that looked like these footmen from a you know from a, an, a novel or something you know it's for Vanity Fair or whatever there were these characters wandering around with with velvet culottes and sort of um, you know buttoned um, waistcoats and things and um, I remember going in and um, sort of feeling a bit um, slightly intimidated by the place and and then over the years I got to know all the staff so I know the executive chef there the chief concierge the the executive the manager's assistant all of these people so now it's almost like a family and I know all everything behind the scenes but the first impression was quite intimidating and I I it was it was a different kind of world at the time and um quite rarefied you know I remember seeing this big Rolls-Royce Phantom parked outside and there was this huge television set strapped onto a table with a Betamax video recorder and I remember thinking that was like that was the peak of luxury that someone could have a video machine and a television in their car and um and it was a sort of such a weird time because um you still didn't have the communication and the internet and everything it was still a bit sort of you know that had still to come so it was like looking behind the curtain basically you know you were seeing into another world so tell me what it's like to to work on six weeks for carriages what was the brief what what was the sourcing process like what was what was the fitting process like tell me everything so well we had um when i when i first went there um i was briefed by um the design director and um and then there was the owners so you in a hotel structure there's usually the owners of the property and the operators of the property. So that's two people you've got to sort of get your ideas passed and um, show them what you're thinking creatively. But there was another element to it as well. At the time, there were also guests who stayed there for long periods. So you would have people living in the hotel for six months and the, the general manager of the hotel would ask you to present the scheme to them as well and listen to their input and what they wanted. And you know the creative side the look of the place is very important obviously and 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 the the colors and the textures and all those things but the functionality and the practicality of the space is also important so you know one of your biggest enemies as a designer can be the housekeeper because they'll whack their hoover into your beautiful table or your chair legs or and and it it becomes second nature to learn how to build in little defenses for your, your so there's longevity so every desk plinth has got a sort of metal plate around the base of it that's um all the legs have sabots on the chair legs of chairs have sabots on them that sort of thing and over the years what i've learned is that becomes second nature where to put this you know this how the shower is set up in carriages they have they always used to have an overhead shower a shoulder shower and a hand shower and in the, in their showers 
So that's three different water systems. And the reason why that is, is they don't want, you know, guests might not want to get their hair wet if they're using the shoulder shower. And, um, and it's, you know, they had a very specific set of standards, which I think at the t- were probably the best standards in the world, to be honest. The Savoy Group as was, it's now the Maybourne Group, but the Savoy Group as was, was probably the most famous and the highest standards of any hotel group anywhere globally and I didn't realize that when I started working there I thought you know this was an hotel but I didn't realize it was one of the hotels in the world I mean as in on top five and so it was a great again that was a great learning experience for me so learning all those details and then you know then being then having all the creativity as well and trying to you've got to be contextually respectful of a place like that Claridge's has got two sides to it there's the 1897 part that was built by um, the doily carts, um, and they consulted Cesar Ritz, so it's very much a 19th century aesthetic. And then you've got the 1926 to 1931 extension, which was designed by someone called Basil Ionides and an architect called Oswald Milne. And that's the other part of it. And it's respecting the context of those things and working with that that sort of baseline and then enhancing and improving and make bringing things up to date for guests um, today. And what did your suites look like? <laughs> so the first the first ones were called the 47 series. And those are, I think, now being turned into a lift bank. So um, because there's now this great um, alterations to the hotel, it's um, they've gone down five stories under it. Um, there's this massive basement that's been um, is being installed. And then there's they've gone up two stories on top of it so it's it's very much changed you know there's a sort of it's going to become a much bigger hotel so these i when i was there it was all about finding um extra space within the within the hotel and we discovered these rooms that were battery rooms when they if the electricity failed and there was no need for them anymore and we were able to create these suites out of these spaces on each floor six suites and so it was in the 19th century part of the hotel, so it was respectful to that language. Um, but I was—I think I was very clever with the space, and I created um, a sort of dressing lobby, um, a bathroom with a big steam shower and a big bath, and and then the the main room. It was what they call a junior suite, so it wasn't too. There wasn't a sitting room there, but there was a separate apps and a, at one side, which created a sort of study. And then I was, I create, I always, I put these window seats in and a pair of armchairs around a fireplace and that created seating for four where otherwise there might've been for two people. And also we put in the first flat screens at the time, which weren't that flat. Um, So we had to build the wall out 12 centimeters to put these new screens in. And they were the first flat screens in any hotel in London at the time. So this was regarded as the latest thing. And of course, now they're, they're sort of four or five centimetres thick. They're not, you know, you don't have to build out the wall and make them look like they're flatter than they are. But it, technology will always change and evolve. And, and when you build around technology, it kind of defeats you the next in the next incarnation. Um, so that's also a lesson. Dealing with the restrictions of working with such a, a revered period, you know, uh, much loved period property. Did you feel like you had a lot of pressure? Did you feel like you knew what you were doing? Um, I kind of, I embraced it because it, it sort of was everything I was interested in. So I loved the periods of architecture, all the different periods of architecture in the hotel. And it excites me, you know, it's something that I love doing. So for me, it's, it's, um you know the i you become immersed in the subject and every designer's got a different 
different sort of interpretation. It's all based on experience. So I was once asked to define taste um, and um, I thought about it for a long time and I spoke to my father and, and said, what do you, how do you define taste? And he said, well, taste is experience. And then I added, except some people have had bad experiences. And um, you, you're filtering everything through this prism in your brain of everything that you've experienced and liked and enjoyed so like directing a film ang lee or steven spielberg would have a different vision on the same subject it's the same with interior designers and because of your life experience and what has made an impact on you or made you you know impressed you or you felt is good you you end up filtering all of those things together and it comes into your becomes your design and so for me it's I get immersed in the process and I forget um, any sort of um, fears or, or that I might have about, about doing the work. And it becomes something that I, I become fully sort of, um, it, it be, I sort of live and breathe it when I'm working on the project. And I may even sit up in the middle of the night and write notes or do a sketch or something because I'll have thought about something and, and, and that's how I, how I work. And... I just want to interrupt this conversation to tell you a little bit about the iconic momentum ranges from Harlequin. From organic-inspired wallpapers to architectural geometric fabrics, this contemporary range has looks to suit any home, allowing you to embrace colour and be bold with design. I'm particularly into the subtle metallic gleam of the element texture wallpaper, which is as sophisticated as it is beautiful. To keep up to date with all the latest inspiration from Harlequin, follow at HarlequinFW on Instagram. Harlequin, the premier destination for inspirational design and colour. And you became uh, somewhat of a hotel expert off the back of this project because I think, believe it led to a relationship with Andre Ballas, the kind of, you know, the master hotelier that, you know, has hotels like The Standard and all around the world. You know, how did you come to meet him? Well, so that was an interesting thing. So the other part of my life is having a Scottish Presbyterian mother. I um, am always being told, to, I was always being told to put back. And so also my experience with um, saving the building as a student at Edinburgh University, but I was asked by a friend um, to try and save a building in um, uh, Savile Row, which is called, ironically, the headquarters of English Heritage. And it was designed by someone called William Curtis Green, who designed the Dorchester Hotel and had also designed what was the Wolsey Car Showroom and is now the Wolsey Brasserie. Um, and the Fortress House was his best work. Um I, I believe. And I went into a campaign to save it. And I realized that in London, the pressure on property is always about money. So I knew I had to try and find money to buy this building. And I thought that this building could become the Savile Hotel on Savile Row. And the most fashionable uh, developer in London at the time was a man called Anton Bilton, and the most fashionable hotelier in the world um, at the time and arguably now is Andre Bellage. And um, I wrote to him and I told him about this project. And suddenly all these financiers came along and they said, you can have £180 million to buy this building and restore it. And I was like, wow. Um, we put together this proposal, went to legal in general to buy the property. And I learned a big lesson, which is, is get an exclusivity um, and I didn't have an exclusivity. They just said, if you can pay us £100 million for this building, you can have it. So I went to Legal in General and I said, we've got all this money. We've got the backers. We've got the developer. We've got everything ready. Um, here you go. And they said, thanks very much. We're going to put it on the open market. <laughs> and, um, so the property was put on the market and it was sold a month later for £105 million. 
oh. and they demolished it. And um, I always think this is one of the great disappointments in my life because what it was replaced with was rather a dull building and a dull office building. And the people who demolished it and built the office building couldn't let the offices and um, they went bust. So, and now, you know, there's <laughs> there's this building which is inferior to what was there before and it kind of spoils the context of the other period buildings that are still standing there. And it was a great disappointment to me. But because of that project and because of that sort of drive that I had, I two things happened. One, I was made a trustee of Save Britain's Heritage, which I am still today. And I, I, I love working with them. They're a fantastic charity and they punch, you know, really high above their weight and save a lot of properties in London, including Smithfield General Market, um, um, which is about to become the Museum of London. And I met Andre Bellage and he asked me to be his consultant uh, designer, head of design and development. I was the executive vice president of his business. And there was a period of two and a half years where I was sort of flying around the world looking at properties and working with him. And um, it was a fascinating time because I was also interviewing other designers. I was not only looking at design and and um, designing ideas for him but also interviewing other contemporaries of mine and that was a great experience for me because you sort of saw how how people worked in the industry and broadly speaking we're all similar but we have different visions and that's you know it was it was lovely to be in that position to you know be the gamekeeper instead of the poacher or whatever and which hotels were you working on so so his properties at the time were the raleigh in in uh, miami which is an extraordinary 30s building it's beautiful it's got the most beautiful swimming pool in the world i think there was the mercer in new york and the chateau marmont in la and when i was there we were pulling together the team to um build the standard hotel in new york which isn't an architectural style i like i find it quite brutal but it was a very clever design solution which was we basically it was an air rights building over what is now the highline park in new york so it was building a bridge over a railway and building a building on top of the bridge <laughs> and that was an extraordinary clever real estate move and it was an extraordinary clever design project and because we did that the building was oriented so that all the all the bedrooms have the most extraordinary views of the river and um and also over the the park and the, which is this extraordinary thing called the highline park which was a very long thin green vein that runs on the east side in new york so yeah andre was a fantastic experience for me i met all these extraordinary developers in new york and all the designers and um and we 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 parted company one day because he said to me i don't need another me <laughs> And, uh, I'm not quite sure what that meant, but um, we we we're still friends, and um, and that's when the Connaught project started. So it's a different. It was a you know I I jumped out of being in the in the US and commuting back and forwards to being back in in London and becoming lead designer for the Connaught, which was uh, which went on to become one of the most successful hotels in the world. So that was that was a lovely a lovely thing to be immersed in for the next few years after that. And the Connor, of course, is part of the same group as Claridge's. So yes. was did that come about because of contacts you'd made before? Yes, it did. I mean, the the Connor at that time was a bit of an old people's home, and literally there was there was no air conditioning. Um, furniture would be taken out of suites that that guests lived in or stayed in, and would be sort of dumped in the corridors. There was 
it had slowly unraveled, you know, any design integrity that it had had, had gone. And there'd been this culture, like, you know, literally, if somebody had died in the hotel, the furniture would be put out in the corridor, and it would be left there. And there was a very weird, I never forget the um, the doors to the suites and the rooms, they had this weird system of a doorbell, and then a red, amber and green light outside which is you know um, don't come in or I'll be ready shortly or do come in and it was a sort of very weird sort of antiquated system but uh, I grew to love the Connaught at first I didn't want to work on it I said I, I said unless you're completely re- refurbishing the whole property there's no point and at the time they were only going to do 30 rooms and I said you, that's not even going to touch the sides you need to and then slowly slowly um, there was um, the chief executive at the time sort of encouraged me and um, she then convinced the board to sort of invest in the whole property. And we literally had to, you know, introducing air conditioning, introducing systems and um, technology and everything into the building, refurbishing all the bathrooms. And one of the nice things was it had an incredible inventory of art and furniture. And I took all the art edited it and brought it all into the center of the old core of the building so all the guests could appreciate the art collection and the furniture collection and then we put contemporary art um, in the suites and um, enhanced the uh, traditional furniture that was there so that was a lovely experience because you're editing and, and recycling upcycling and using things um, to, to keep the continuity of the past with the building and the reason why people stay in Claridge's or the Connaught or any of those hotels is they want to touch that history and they want to be part of it and it's you know I mean that that late 19th century style for me isn't my favorite period but you it feels homely and warm and when people walk into the Connaught they're not they can't quite put their finger on on it but it feels almost like a grand house in in London and I think that's why they have such loyal um, following of clients. I mean, I think there's a there's a true magic when you walk into the Connaught. You know, it's. I mean, I don't go there very often. It's such a rare and wonderful treat to be there. I remember I I came out of a long relationship once, and 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 you know, I and to sort of, you know, I had a moment where I just went to the Connaught and treated myself to a glass of champagne, just as I was sort of sitting there mulling over the next stage of my life and where I'd been and what I was going to do next. And I just wanted to be in that 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 surrounded by that real feeling of of luxury that meets homeliness that meets warm welcome it, it's so special I wonder what you think makes a great hotel because I really feel that you've managed to distill that into the Connaught um so I think I think the thing the big mistake a lot of people made was trying to homogenize luxury and so there's a place for that I mean Conrad Hilton you, you know after the second world war they were building hotels that were identical around the world so American businessmen would feel they were somewhere familiar and there was definitely a place for that then because standards were pretty low but for me um it's about uniqueness bespoke things that are ex- representative of the culture so the Connaught isn't just about london it's about mayfair um and it's that specific um if you go to paris you know those the two hotels that i think feel very parisian are l'hotel which jacques garcia uh, created a long time ago. It was one of his first properties there. And then the Hotel Cost, which are these sort of uh, niche boutique experiences. And and they feel Parisian somehow. And it's about, I think, if you're, even if you're an executive traveling or you're uh, someone experiencing, you know, as a tourist, it's about, you know, the sense of place. And, and, and these days, 
you know, with globalization, things are, you know, people want unique experiences. They don't want the same experiences. And I, I think that the culture we have now, you know, with young people, millennials coming through, it is about experience, experiencing things that are unique or special and not things that are the same. So I think this, there's a culture now of people buying into experiences or buying something that feels feels very special. And, um, you know, that, that to me is a good hotel. It, um, do you ever pinch yourself that you this rarefied world has become something that you're now used to? You know, my father said something to me once, which was, um, what happens when your life exceeds your expectations? He said, keep your mouth shut. Um, and um, I always feel that what I'm doing employs the most incredible artisans and craftspeople. So I never stop appreciating my life. I, I, I absolutely have a thrill when I walk into a beautiful building or an artisan's workshop or working with fine or beautiful objects. And so for me, you know, on one side, people think, you know, what is the purpose of all this rarefied things? Well, for you know, it employs people and you employ people who are the the best kind of tradesmen and craftspeople. So people who weave carpets, make beautiful um, furniture or upholstery or paint um, in a fine way or, or gilders or carvers or plaster workers or any of those people. And they're doing something that they love doing. They have a passion and, and you are kind of like this conductor of an orchestra where you've got to bring all of it together into a scheme and make the whole thing harmonious. And so, yes, of course, you're dealing with a world of luxury. Um, but, you know, I still I still walk in the streets. I still see what's going on in the world. I still have to pay my bills. I still, you know, I don't live like that. I have a have a different experience that way. But I do really love what I do and I really enjoy help you know you're bringing people together in a way to create something beautiful you're manifesting this amazing experience and you know i'm, I'm working on a site at the moment and probably the associated with the project there's about 100 different people and and that's the most extraordinary thing another way of looking at it is it's a kind of a job creation scheme for people doing wonderful things and that's how I justify it morally. We're going to move on lastly to the to the final section of the podcast, which is the Home Truths round, which is a, a series of quick fire questions. So, Guy, what's the, your favourite hotel that you have not worked on? Uh, L'Hotel in Paris. Um, have you picked up any new hobbies during lockdown? Oh, good question. Um, to be honest, I've always felt, I've felt it's been running quite fast to keep in the same position but I've started reading again which is really important I never made time for myself to read books and I mean I would use reference books but not actually read books so I was just reading Eric Newby's uh, Short Walk in the Hindu Kush and not mentioned in this podcast but I've got a strong relationship with Afghanistan working with artisans there and helping on a project restoring part of Kabul city center so I've been reading all the background um books and novels about that area of the world and catching up on my knowledge that I should have had previously. Um, so that's been a big part of it, so is, is, is spending more time reading and enjoying that again. Very good. Um, what was the last film that you watched? Uh, the last film that I watched was a bit indulgent. I watched Dr. Zhivago all the way through alone when uh, <laughs> I was at home on the for the day on a weekend and it was um, I, I watched the whole thing that was kind of like a guilty pleasure and and lastly uh, where can people engage with your work or find you on social media 
my my only real connection with the outside world that way is instagram so it's it's guy oliver underscore and i i take pictures of things i like it's not really pushing my work necessarily it's more about things that i see or enjoy seeing and and that's been you know that's how i sort of communicate great Okay. Great. Well, well, listen, thank you so much for your time and for telling us through. You know, I've loved the hotels you've worked on and it's so nice to hear the, the backstory of, of what it's actually like to put them together. So thank you. Okay. Thank you, Pip. I appreciate it. And thank you for listening. We'll be back next week with another episode of Home Truths. In the meantime, don't forget to buy the latest issue of Living Etc. in the stores now and to follow us on Instagram on at Living Etc. UK and me on at Pip McCormack. See you next time. This episode of Home Truths is sponsored by Harlequin, the premier destination for inspirational design and colour.